Our uh, portion of God's Word this morning comes from Revelation chapter 3. If you turn there uh, in your, your packets or your Bibles, if you have them, Revelation chapter 3. As you know, in the first few chapters of Revelation, especially chapters 2 and 3, we find several letters, letters written to seven of the, uh, the early churches in Asia Minor. And this morning, we're going to look at one of those letters, a letter to the church in Philadelphia. And uh, we have a wonderful set of promises that God extends to this, this small, young, suffering congregation uh, to conquer with the promises of Christ. So please follow along with me as I read this passage from God's holy word from Revelation 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're going to read, uh, finish our reading of God's word there this morning. Well, some of you in the congregation this morning will know what I mean uh, when I say that there's nothing quite like receiving a handwritten letter in the mail from a friend or a relative. Because a handwritten note, a handwritten letter, much more than an email, uh, far more than a simple text or a few emojis, uh, have the ability to, to, to move our emotions to move us to tears, to put a smile on our face. They're uniquely able to lift our spirits, to, to encourage our burdened souls. Well, this morning, the message to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, which is the, the words of the letter to the church, to the Christians living in that city that we have in the scriptures, that letter was written to uplift and encourage these Christians to conquer the trials and the temptations of the devil with the sure knowledge that Christ their King has already conquered on their behalf. If you've ever studied Revelation 2 and 3 and you've looked at the letters to the seven churches, you know that uh, these passages tell us many things, many details about the trials that these churches faced. And Christ's words to the church in Philadelphia in particular come with praise, come with commendation for their faithful witness 
amidst great tribulation. We know something about the church in Philadelphia. It was a very small church, a very young church. And the area that this church was located was a difficult area to live in because it was a volcanic area. It was called the Burnt Land. Because of all the volcanic activity going on in Philadelphia, there were frequent earthquakes that troubled the city. Sometimes those earthquakes were so severe that people had to leave their home, leave the city, and take up residence somewhere else. Not only was that trying to the Philadelphia church, but, but the gods, the idol gods of the pagan imperial cult had places of worship all over Philadelphia. It certainly would have reminded the Christians there that they were just strangers on earth, just passing through to their heavenly homeland. But the greatest trial, the greatest tribulation that the church in Philadelphia faced didn't come from pagans. It came from the Jews who lived there. Because already by this time, the Jews in this area severely persecuted the Christians. They insisted that they alone were the people of God. They insisted that they alone had an open door into the kingdom of heaven. Only they had God's law. Only they had the promises. And so they reviled against, they persecuted the Christians, uh, even going so far as to bar their access into the synagogues. Well, it's in the midst of this trying and troubling situation that this letter comes to establish comfort, to give assurance to these Christians by focusing their attention on the promises of God about the eternal heavenly city that God has prepared for all of his suffering saints. And brothers and sisters, that promise is for us this morning. We mustn't get caught up in all of the apocalyptic details of Revelation. Because the main point of this book is simply this. That God rules history. And he's bringing it to consummation. He's bringing it to fulfillment in Jesus Christ for his church. And so this morning we want to listen carefully to the words of the Spirit of God so that our hearts might be strengthened. So that he might enable us to hold on amidst the tribulations of this age, to hold on to the very end to keep our attention on the, the risen, reigning, and ruling Jesus Christ, our conquering Christ, who empowers us to inherit eternal fellowship with him. We have three promises in this passage this morning that I'd like us to look at. First of all, the great promise of an open door. The promise of an open door. Going back to those handwritten letters, we know that the most beloved people in our lives make the best letter writers. We, we cherish most of all, we read most eagerly, we listen most attentively to the words that are written by our dearest friends and relatives. And in this letter, the, the Christians in Philadelphia receive comforting words from their most cherished friend and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And the opening address of Christ here in verse 7 contains some words that are meant to calm their fears, to calm their uncertainty about their situation by reminding them about who Jesus is and what he's done for them. We see in verse 7 a vision, a glorious vision of the Son of Man. And he's described here as the Holy One, the True One. 
who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Here we have some, some images, some word pictures that focus squarely upon Jesus Christ and they reveal something comforting about our conquering king. Notice that several divine attributes are attributed to Jesus here. He is said to be the Holy One, the True One. And by this, the writer says that our Lord Jesus has been set apart by God Himself. He's been given supreme power and holy majesty to complete His saving work on behalf of the church. Christ always stands for us to reveal the truth about God and about His kingdom, to reveal the truth about His redeeming work as the King and the Messiah of God's people. Jesus, the true Israel, stands in contrast to the false Jews here who are call themselves Jews, we read in verse 9, but they are not and they lie. Those who rejected Jesus, those who are persecuting his church in Philadelphia, although they are the liars, Jesus stands and he speaks the truth about his church. We also read that our Lord Jesus Christ alone has the key of David, for he is the Messiah of David. By holding the keys, we understand that Jesus holds ultimate kingly authority as the head of his church. As the divine ruler of his heavenly kingdom, only Christ has the authority to admit people into the kingdom of heaven. Only he has the authority to exclude people from his kingdom. Only he determines who has the freedom to enter into his, his glorious courts and approach God himself. Only Jesus can shut the doors to those who are not citizens of his kingdom. What neither David or Solomon or any other earthly king could do, Christ has done. And all the weight of the host of redeemed people and their destiny rests in the hands of Jesus Christ, the conquering king. That's what we understand by this opening vision here in verse 7 of Christ, the true one, the holy one, who holds the keys. And this vivid imagery of opening the kingdom, closing the kingdom, says a lot about Christ the king, but it also has some wonderful implications for the church. The door to the synagogue in Philadelphia may have been shut off, it may have been closed to the Christians by these ruthless and jealous Jews. But Christ promises his people that these Jews could not succeed in barring the church from his glorious heavenly kingdom. The description of Christ here in verse 7 assures the followers of Jesus that the doors leading into the true synagogue, God's heavenly kingdom, those doors stood wide open to them. So Jesus says in verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. No form of opposition could keep these saints from enjoying the eternal blessings secured for them by their Savior. They would enjoy unhindered, unbarred access into the very heavenly sanctuary of God Himself through Christ. 
Brothers and sisters in the Lord, we face a situation not unlike these early Christians in Philadelphia. Because we know that Satan and his allies would love to bar us from the kingdom of heaven too. And the devil tempts us almost daily to doubt the sufficiency of God's grace. The devil would encourage us to doubt that God could ever possibly forgive us of our many sins. He whispers in our ears that the trials and the persecutions and the fears and the doubts that we encounter in this life mean that God has left us, that we are on our own, that we are left to fend for ourselves. The devil would encourage us to think that we are gods, that we are the masters of our own destiny. He dresses up the cares and the concerns of this world, this kingdom passing away. He urges us to fall deeply in love with this world and all of its satanic synagogues so that we no longer crave the, the coming heavenly kingdom of Christ. Satan would love to cut in on your race and trip you up and spread the lie that the doors to God's heavenly kingdom are shut and they're barred. But our Lord Jesus, who is the holy doorkeeper of His heavenly kingdom, He always tells the truth. And He exposes Satan's lies and He promises that He has set before us an open door. Indeed, He says in John 10, I am the door. I am the way. And all who enter by grace through faith in Jesus Christ will be saved and will go into that heavenly kingdom and will enjoy eternal rest. You see, our Lord knows. Notice the repeated refrain in this letter. I know. Jesus says. I know. I know your situation. I am intimately acquainted with your troublesome and fearful situation in which you live. He knows our humble beginnings. He knows the often marginalized existence that we have as a church in this godless society, just as he knew the church in Philadelphia had little power, little strength. But Christ transforms our weakness into an occasion for his power to be manifested and magnified in profound ways in our own tribulations in this life, maybe for you it's physical weakness and pain. Maybe it's spiritual depression. Maybe you are severely troubled by the increased opposition that we face as a church in our society. It's in those tribulations that God shows us His profound grace and He promises to keep His word and patiently endure because of the grace of God that sustains us. You see, the vision of Christ that we have here in this passage assures us that God's abounding grace is more than sufficient to meet our every need, even in the midst of trouble. And so we can be patient in endurance. We can be committed to God's Word so that we too might be commended, praised by our God on the last day. <laughs> May it ever be said that in weakness of life, we deny the name of our conquering king.
May it never be said that we gave up, although our, our Christ has conquered. Instead, may it be said that we remain steadfast in our good confession, that we valued, we kept the word of our true and faithful King, Jesus Christ. That is the first and the greatest promise here. The second promise of our Lord is the promise of final vindication for His church. You should always keep in mind that while it is true that Christ reigns right now as our conqueror, as our advocate before the Father, He's also coming again. There's still more for us to look forward to. And He's coming again to claim that victory over His enemies and the enemies of the church. He's coming to claim that consummate, full victory. You notice here that, that Jesus doesn't just commend the church in Philadelphia for her faithfulness under fire. He also says he will vindicate them before the face of their enemies. Specifically in verse 9 here, they're told that their opponents, the Jews, and every opponent of the gospel would be made to come and bow down before their feet. They would come and see that Christ loves his church with an inexhaustible love. And this is sort of a reversal of what the people of Israel had expected. Prophet Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah 45, Isaiah 49, for example, that it would be the Gentiles who would come and bow down before the people of Israel. But now there's a reversal. The Jews would come and bow down before them. Of course, the Jews misunderstood. It was un the unbelievers that come and bow down before the people. Christ, the church, and proclaim that Christ loves his people. And so we have a beautiful portrayal of the vindication that all of us are going to enjoy through the, the victory of Christ. The gospel will triumph. Christ will be acknowledged and proclaimed as supreme over all one day by those who now uh, denigrate and despise him. But we long for that. We long for that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. On that glorious day, because Christ has set His love on us, everyone will acknowledge, everyone will pay homage to God that we have received His salvation. And this is not due to any special goodness in us, but simply because Christ has made us His special possession. On that day of vindication, everyone will witness the wonder of Christ's atoning work for you and for me. And even in their unbelief, they will not be able to help but wonder and marvel at what Jesus has done for us, those whom he loves, for those upon whom he has placed his special affection, for those he has freed from sin, by his own blood. Let's not forget, brothers and sisters, that though that vindication is a future event, we already share in that victory right now. Because we have a sure, we have a certain knowledge right now that one day we are going to walk alongside the victorious Lamb in his heavenly kingdom and share in all of the glory that is his. We know we have a certain knowledge that the ache of this life is going to be erased. 
And after we have persevered by the power of God, we are going to stand with God, with Christ, as faithful witnesses of all that He has done for us. We will stand as witnesses against those who foolishly, foolishly reject Christ and oppose His gospel. But we are propelled now in life by this marvelous promise that one day we will be vindicated before those who now ridicule and scoff at us. But finally, we have the promise of eternal security. As we've learned, as we've seen here, that final vindication, that great day when unbelievers will bow before Christ and His church and confess that He loves us, that day is not here yet. And every day we are profoundly aware of that as we struggle through life, as our strength as believers and as a church is very small in this life. Like the people of Philadelphia, we have very little power. Sometimes we feel insecure. We are downright terrified as our society, as our world grows more godless and oppressive and opposed to the biblical truth that we believe and that we confess as a church. So very much like the walls of the city of Philadelphia during a tragic earthquake, we, we totter and we wobble. We are tempted to crumble in fear and in weakness as we look at all of the evil around us as the, as the trials of this life threaten our hope and our joy. But Jesus, in this letter, responds to the fear and the uncertainty of the trials of this life, and he promises us eternal security in at least three ways. First, here in verse 10, he promises the church that he will keep her from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Indeed, that day of judgment, that hour of reckoning is coming soon on the whole earth. And it will bring times of testing and times of tribulation into every one of our homes as we look forward to the return of Christ. But the wonderful promise here is that ultimate rescue and peace and bliss belong to us. While that day will be a day of fear and destruction for those uh, who belong to the kingdom of Satan, we know that when that day of trial comes, it cannot jeopardize our eternal security in Christ. Because we know and we have received the grace of Christ that streams down from His cross. For Christ patiently endured the suffering that we deserve on our behalf. We are safe in Him, in Christ, from this final ordeal that will come upon the earth. We are secure in the knowledge that our trials are only temporary. They last but for a short time. Because the final judgment of our sins has already taken place on the cross. And there is not a chance that we will ever come under judgment for death on the last day. We hold, as Jesus says in verse 11, we hold the wreath, the crown of victory that was given to the, the winner, the, the victor in a race. We hold that wreath. And we hold on to it in faith and obedience, knowing that Christ 
owns us. He possesses us as his special possession, and he will empower us by his spirit to follow his commandments with endurance in this present wicked age. We may not be exempt from the ups and the downs of this life, but we are protected by our great God and Father who promises in Luke 12, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. That's a sure promise from our God that he will protect us from that final hour of trial and judgment. But secondly, verse 12, for those who conquer, Christ promises to make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And the promise is, never shall he go out of it. Now, boys and girls, you know enough about pillars to know that they're very sturdy, aren't they? They're very strong. When you build a pillar, it's meant to stay because it, it's one of the most important parts of holding up a building. Pillars represent stability or lasting power. Well, Christ promises us here that we will obtain one of the things that King David longed for in Psalm 27. There he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. All the days of of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple, to dwell in the land of the living. Well, that promise must have resonated very well with the Christians living in Philadelphia who longed for the day when no enemy, no earthquake would drive them from their home, from their city, that they could dwell forever in a lasting city. They could abide forever and ever in the heavenly city of God. And that's the promise that we have as believers. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 that, that in, the, in the new heavens and the new earth there will be no temple. But Christ will dwell with his people who are being built up together as living stones, as a spiritual house. The promise to us is that as the redeemed, we have been bonded together for eternal glory, and by grace we will serve before God's throne, and the promise we will never go out of it. Eternal security with our God. Finally, the promise of God is that Christ will write God's name and the name of the new Jerusalem and his own new name upon the saints. In the year 8070, after the city of Philadelphia was devastated by an earthquake. The people honored uh, the new emperor for his help in rebuilding the city, and they took on they took on the name Neo Caesarea, the city of the new Caesar. Well, that name changed again some years later to honor another pagan emperor. Well, in the midst of all the changing of names and the honoring of of wicked rulers, that Jesus promised must have meant a great deal to the Christians living in Philadelphia because his promise is that he will give them a new name, a permanent name. Not just any name, but his own name. What a profoundly meaningful promise. Jesus promises a far greater name be given to his suffering people, the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. And this is a significant name. 
Because it's, this name means that God owns us. We are his own possession. We are precious to him. We are eternally secure in his love. With that name, the name of the new Jerusalem, the new city of our God, we have conquered. And we are made permanent residents, permanent citizens of his victorious heavenly kingdom. Brothers and sisters, that affects our perspective on life. Because the stamp of that name announces that our citizenship is in heaven from where we wait a Savior. It's the name of our Redeemer and Lord by which we are known by the world around us. The name with which we conquer. The name in whom we are secure forever and ever. And so dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, the call of our Lord is this. Become pilgrim in this life and you will be a pillar in the next entrust yourself right now to your divine doorkeeper jesus christ and you will never ever go out of the security of the heavenly sanctuary hold fast in your profession now by the strength of god and your heavenly pillar will be permanently inscribed with the name of god in his heavenly city Learn to be content as a wandering sheep without a pasture in this world. And you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. These are the true promises of Christ. For those who enter through his doors, who have waged war for Christ against the powers of evil, and who conquer because Christ has already conquered Satan, sin, and death for you. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious vision of our Lord Jesus here in this letter to the small, young, suffering church in Philadelphia. Lord, we thank you for the promise that our Lord Jesus, the Holy One, the True One, the One who holds the key of David, who alone can open and shut the doors of the kingdom of heaven, is our doorkeeper and our master, and our shepherd. We thank you for the wonderful promises conveyed to us here. But Lord, we see the similarity in our trials and troubles as a church in the 21st century to what went on in the first century. We so often feel marginalized and, and troubled uh, by the distressing trends in the world around us. We realize how small and how powerless we often seem and feel. And yet, Lord, the promise is true. And you have prepared for us eternal security, a lasting vindication, and ready access into your heavenly courts. There is no earthly leader, no earthly king that can bar us from your heavenly kingdom. For those who know you, by grace through faith, Christ. Thank you that you know our trials and our tribulations. You are intimately acquainted with our sufferings. And you have a day appointed when you will put an end to all those trials and tribulations, when no tears will be upon our face, no pain or suffering will beset our lives, but we will be whole and complete and full in Christ, and we will live forever before your throne with the saints. 
in glory. May these promises propel us and strengthen us for faithful service in this life as we await the victorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.